attacks on supply chains have made life really difficult. You know, a lot of these ransomware attacks and nation state attacks are rippling down through two or three providers before they hit the target. And, you know, once the target is hit, uh, uh, you know, getting that information of, of what the incident was, uh, what, you know, what has actually happened and what you should be doing about it is, is complicated. Listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. John, welcome to the show. It's really excited. I'm really excited to have you here today because one, uh, I've heard a lot about you in the market, which is good. And also I've been reading some of the reports, which we are going to base this conversation off today about some of the observations that NTT has seen in the market. But we, but, but before we sort of dive on into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please, John, can you walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Carissa. And uh, look, it's great to be here. It's uh, great to be able to talk about one of my favorite topics, cybersecurity. And, uh, and yeah, look, there's some really interesting um, aspects that have come out in the January report. Uh, so looking forward to getting into that. But yeah, where did I start? Um, so I started off as with a few people in the industry as, a, as an engineer. Um, I qualified as an electronics communications engineer out of Curtin University in good old West Australia. And um, I'll be honest, I had no idea uh, where I wanted to go or where I wanted to head. And that's possibly a little bit of a uh, characteristic of my career in different twists and turns. But by chance, uh, I went to a small startup um, and that startup was a company making data encryptors. And uh, they weren't well known at that stage, but uh, they were being used by sort of the top end of industry, um, you know, banks, governments and the like. And uh, I became a design engineer, um, sort of helping design a bit of hardware and, and software, started coding. I think I pretty quickly realized, however, that I wasn't a good coder. And uh, that always comes as a disappointment when you've uh, spent four years um, you know, getting a qualification. But um, you know, I realized uh, that I probably had a better nature towards support and communicating with people. and. Um, by fortunate chance, uh, I got offered a role in Europe, um, firstly based in London and later in Brussels, to set up and run the technical support uh, side of that uh, data encryption company. And I spent a glorious couple of years um, talking uh, to some of the most interesting companies, you know, governments, police, uh, did a lot of work with SWIFT, the big international um, money transfer uh, organization. Uh, and really learned the art of um, understanding and seeing the diversity of sort of uh, different uh, environments, networks, and starting to think about um, you know, how, to, how to secure them. At that stage, obviously, cybersecurity wasn't even a word, um, but we were, you know, I, I think I was getting a sense of how important um, security uh, was um, to, to the way that the world actually needed to work. Uh, eventually came back to Australia and uh, was convinced to leave sunny West Australia and actually end up in Canberra. And um, uh, I think I was uh, probably conned initially. Canberra wasn't uh, necessarily the, you know, the most desirable city to move to, uh, but some 25 years later, I, I 
grown to very much love it. And um, I took up a role to start providing um, IT services and the likes to government agencies. Um, and I really got to understand then, I think, um, you know, what kind of uh, the some of the real threats were that were actually being um, faced and tackled and, and developing in the world. Uh, government agencies such as Defence and that are obviously at the pointy end of that that side. And I did have an interesting couple of years working on the more um, sensitive side uh, and, and learning a bit more about uh, kind of, um, you know, threat actors, nation state threat actors and, and the likes. But um, uh, after a while, um, I think I started feeling that yearning and, and a gap in my career um, because I just didn't really understand how to relate uh, at more senior levels in organisations. And uh, I actually started doing some courses in finance and business management. Um, I think with the in, in intuitive um, understanding that I needed to understand that language as well. And um, I sort of very much enjoyed that, um, picking up those kind of very, uh, you know, different skills. And uh, I, from there, I actually became a partner in one of the big four in EY and, um, uh, you know, learned how to communicate at a risk uh, level, you know, risk assurance and sort of setting strategy and had a, a great time with, with government and actually uh, broader industry. Uh, and then eventually I came, um, you know, to where I sit now, which is, um, I, I think I always missed that high technology, high um, client touch. And so uh, my role currently is as the senior director for cybersecurity for NTT, um, originally it was Dimension Data when I first joined, um, uh, is very much, um, uh, you know, about uh, understanding the strategy, uh, the direction of a business, understanding what's important. And so now I talk more in terms of business um, reliability, business resilience, and perhaps, um, you know, the underlying trust layer, and then sort of helping connect the technology side into it. And um, that is ever a challenge, uh, but ever, you know, a, a sort of a wonderful experience in terms of providing services into, um, into our customer base. Wow, great journey. You've obviously had a lot of experience across the globe. One of the things that I sort of want to just zoom in that you sort of touched on, John, which I found interesting because, I mean, if you look at the, the premise of why I do this podcast, it's really dedicated to senior executives and for people perhaps that aren't necessarily in a cyber or IT or a CIO, CTO type of role, right, because it's part of everyone's remit to understand security. So talk to me a little bit more about when you said how to relate at the senior level because a lot of guests that I've spoken to talk about these people I speak to in the market, but I still feel there is still quite a big dissonance between understanding what are the key sort of drivers that are going to get people that are perhaps not in the tech or security realm to really understand the importance of it. Uh, and, and you said something before around how important security was earlier in your career. So I'm keen to understand a little bit more about how do we sort of get better alignment on that front from your experience? Yeah. Uh, um, and I don't think I'm going to have the perfect answer on this one because it's still, as you're quite aware, I think, a, you know, a, a topic that we all um, need to get our heads around and sort of get better at. But, you know, just to relate to the, the earlier part of my career, um, one of the most difficult aspects of that was actually explaining to people why they needed to encrypt all their data, you know, all, all the links and lines that they had. 
And I just saw blank looks at, at those executive levels saying, well, who's going to intercept us? You know, this is surely an, over, you know, an overblown kind of requirement. And it was only really, um, you know, government and sort of banks and that that really realized that actually, no, there's a real risk and there's a real implication of people sort of uh, tap into our lines and start creating havoc. I think wind that forward to today. And there are a few now that um, don't see the, the material risk to their business. But there is still a dilemma of describing um, what's the right priority, um, how do we really quantify that risk um, to, to a point where a CEO uh, can make a decision. And like we have a broad spectrum of customers in, in Australia. Um, and the ones I, I really relate to, I think, are um, perhaps not the ones at the cutting edge, you know, the banks and defence, they, they understand it and they have you know, effectively unlimited um, uh, budgets and so they can throw a lot at it. But go to a hospital or a health group and, you know, a CEO has to make a decision between implementing a, a you know, 2FA or a stronger identity schema versus getting a X-ray machine or an imaging sheet machine that will make, you know, save lives. So how does someone come to um, make that balanced decision of spending on, you know, security, which doesn't have a direct return on investment uh, versus on a better widget technology or something that you can, you know, you can materially feel is actually going to benefit you. And I think one of the things that we have to do is get really good at describing, um, you know, that aspect of business resilience. So how long can you afford to be down? What happens if this scenario XYZ occurs are you willing to accept that? Um, and you know, it, our our job is to to describe the, the priorities um, or help describe the priorities, but also help describe the implications um, and, and then plug that technology layer in. And I never want to sort of detract from how important the right sort of technology is. Um, you know, that is that is vital, and uh, we see people making the wrong decisions every day. But we do need to get to a point where um, the business can see that correct balance and, uh, you know, are willing to invest in something that, that we see as vital these days. Um, and we see the damage done. And, and we, indeed, we've worked um, with a lot of hospitals and health groups in recovering from ransomware and the likes. And it's, you know, it's immensely destructive and, and distressing for a lot of people. So it's such a vital area to get right. Mm, so true. I've also worked in a bank and uh, I do have uh, big budgets. So one of the things I'd like to get into now is I read the report, so we are going to link the recent NTT monthly threat report in the show notes so people can download it if they want to go into explicit detail, but we've got John here sort of giving us the clip notes. One of the things I'd like to talk about, which was interesting when I read the report, was the top five trends for 2022. Now, some of them I weren't probably surprised about, but it's sort of curious um, from my point of view to hear why that's the case. So perhaps if you could provide the, the what the five top five trends are and then maybe understand like why they are the top five trends. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. They're not necessarily surprising. Um, and we've used the word trends rather than predictions. <laughs> so we're being careful. Um, but I think um, uh, they're important for CISOs and, you know, security folk to understand what's coming because it's a bit like that quote, um, I skate to where the puck is. You really need to be thinking 
six months, 12 months ahead of the game. Um, and so these, these, uh, you know, these sort of trends are super important and uh, worth spending a bit of time on. Um, no surprise, we're going to mention ransomware uh, right at the top. Um, you know, it's a, uh, I think the title in the report is it's a lucrative business. Well, no kidding. Um, and, you know, last year was just scattered with the most, you know, heinous um, crimes uh, of disruption of, um, of you know, uh, uh, payments going out um, uh, from all sorts of, in from every industry, basically, that's connected to the internet. I think um, what we're seeing this year is some really interesting um, things turning up. Uh, one is uh, that we have seen a little bit of action by law enforcement, and we'll talk a bit about that, I think, a bit later on, but um, even, even in jurisdictions that were hard to get at, such as Russia, we've seen more recently, um, you know, some um, action by law enforcement to start to curtail ransomware. And what we think is going to happen from that is, I mean, it's such a lucrative business that it won't stop quite clearly. But um, we expect to see actually some of the um, ransoms going up. Uh, so we'll get the more serious players because at the moment we've got everyone. It's such a industrialized system that, uh, you know, the, the fish and chip shop down the road could, could literally become a, a ransomware gang uh, with, with, you know, very little training. So I think um, what we are going to see is the real specialists that have become really effective at, at um, intruding, uh, going through the very, uh, you know, subtle sequences of setting up ransomware traps from ex, ex, um, or trading the data. And now we've even seen uh, adding, you know, DDoS into the equation to up the ante. Uh, we're really going to see some significant uh, ransomware events um, with quite significant um, demands occurring um, on, on the business. And sadly, I think we'll see some decrease of the general noise, but an increase at the bigger end uh, of town on that front. And so would you have to talk about the other, the other ones as well? Um... Yeah, so the other ones, uh, hardening uh, of the insurance market. Um, you know, if you're a bit of a glutton for punishment, you'd feel a little sorry for the insurance companies. Uh, I think they had a great time in the first couple of years offering, offering um, you know, cyber insurance uh, and uh, not really having to pay out much. And then, you know, that, that worm turned and um, suddenly we see uh, so many organizations putting claims in on the insurance that they had. Of course, we still see some, we're seeing some battling out in the courts at the moment. Um, and I think we're seeing an evolution and a maturity of the uh, insurance industry. Uh, no board will accept, I think, an organization not having insurance to cover what's, you know, their top one or two threats to their business. So it's necessary. Um, but, but we're definitely seeing this, the insurance companies, A, being much more prescriptive about um, how and what they insure and their demands on the business in return. So, and this is a positive thing, uh, they are really tightening the screws, I think, on, on an organization to ensure that they do all the cyber hygiene that is necessary you know, to prevent the event in the first place. So I think um, we're definitely seeing a maturing uh, and I think there'll be some interesting announcements this year from key insurance insurers. Uh, but, but my advice to any company looking at it is read the exclusions because they're the things you've got to really think about. And often recovery is more costly than most people think about. And often that is not covered. 
the next one, uh, which is very topical in Australia at the moment, is instant reporting requirements. So this is the requirement to report if a breach has occurred. And if you go to the, um, uh, the government uh, websites around incidents that have been reported, you'll, you'll notice a distinct lack of reporting around ransomware and other events. So in Australia, we have the privacy regulations, and if a privacy uh, breach has occurred, you have to report that, and that gets, um, you know, that gets publicised. But a breach as such is a bit arbitrary, and what we're seeing now is government starting to put some regulations in this front. And most people, I think, would be aware of uh, the critical infrastructure regulations. Uh, the first one has been passed by law already in Australia, and that defines now, I think it's about 11 categories of companies uh, that sit in what we define as critical infrastructure. And it's everything from hospitals to retail, to banking, to transport, you know, and so on. And the first set of laws that are passed um, have a requirement to report a breach and, if, and, and the definition of a breach is if it's material. So, you know, the laws have a bit of fun with that one, but you have to report verbally at least within 12 hours. So that means uh, if a hospital, which is deemed critical infrastructure, um, has an incursion, uh, someone has to get on the phone to the Australian Cybersecurity Centre and actually tell them that um, we've detected a breach. Uh, and then they have to send a report within the next 72 hours, a written report. Um, now, this will, this will occur with pretty well every major company uh, and organisation in Australia. And, and indeed, this requirement's it's, it's being debated in the US at the moment and other places. What this really means is um, number one priority for an organisation is cyber hygiene. Get your basics right. You know, get your basics right, get your basics right, get your people right, you know, train, train, train. But I think the third sort of priority for organisations will have to be that ability to detect and report. So logging, um, you know, technologies that can detect uh, a breach, hopefully stop it, but at least detect it. And, you know, logs that you can go back in on and actually discover what's happened. And we see this third one is lacking quite frequently in companies. And I think it's not an option uh, really going forward. Just quickly, the last two, um, uh, the need for crypto agility. Um, I could certainly talk about this one for hours, but I won't. Um, and it, no prediction or trend would be, uh, would be able to, to not mention uh, the impact of quantum and quantum computing on the world and on particularly on cybersecurity. Uh, I will not make a prediction that the, you know, a, an active and um, usable computer, uh, a quantum computer will, will appear on the market next year. I think that's still a few years off. But the way uh, the, the uh, security industry looks at, you, you have to, especially with um, information, and we're, it's all about information security these days, is you have to think about how long does that information need to be held securely, held encrypted, and so on. And quantum um, just breaks open the paradigm of uh, using standard algorithms and standard key sizes and even standard public key systems to uh, contain and hold that information securely. And so there's a lot of work being done on a couple of areas and actually two Australian companies are leading in this area or doing a lot of work. One in my own hometown, Canberra now, uh, uh, Quintessent, Quintessent Labs, they've done a lot of work on um, uh, what they call quantum random number generators, so QRNGs. So these are generators that make sure that the seeds are extremely random. That's extremely important if, if quantum computing uh, becomes a reality. 
The second thing is quantum key distribution. So a lot of the public key systems will not be strong enough going forward. And so they need alternative ways of distributing keys. And then finally, this quantum resistant algorithms. There's about, I think about 26 that are currently in with NIST uh, that are being reviewed by all the, you know, the crypto experts in the world uh, to see which ones will be suitable. And uh, crypto companies, uh, VPN providers, you know, any of those uh, companies that are providing technology um, need to be factoring these sort of technologies into their products today um, because in five years time it'll be too late uh, should that quantum computer appear. And the final, um, the final um, uh, trend if you like is increases uh, systematic risk and so increase in systematic risk is all about the uh, growing threat landscape that our businesses uh, sit on and I think um, we couldn't go much further than the impact of COVID uh, on uh, how a business operates. Uh, you and I um, are seamlessly sitting at home half the time and sometimes in the office, maybe in the office in the future. And um, you have to feel sorry for the security uh, teams that have to keep evolving their security operating models to deal with these changing, rapidly changing environments. And actually we saw this at the beginning of COVID, some organizations adapted very well. They'd, they'd sort of started going down that sassy or zero trust architecture before COVID. And they they pretty well seamlessly kept operating. And I don't think we saw a, a dissolution or a reduction in their security uh, layers. Others, perhaps companies that were highly reliant on VPN and sort of point to point connections, I mean, they just struggled. And, um, and then we saw sort of evolving threats starting to target things like the routers at home. And actually this is still going on as we speak um, and, and other devices connected to the home environment. So that need to um, skate where the puck is to be six, 12 months ahead is so important for the security teams. And, um, to and you know, they sort of have to be predicting where their business is gonna be in 12 months time. Who are we gonna acquire? How are we gonna operate? Um, and, and what sort of technologies will allow us to um, function uh, securely, meet all the compliance requirements and, um, and not sort of break the bank um, in the scheme of things. So that's the five. Um, we see, you know, there's obviously a lot more trends than that that we talk about, but I think they're probably uh, important ones for anyone to sort of get their head around and, and really think a bit about them. Great synopsis on the trends, uh, the crypto, uh, agility definitely could be its own episode just on that. That was super interesting, the stuff that you're covering off. Some of the things that stood out for me from a practical point of view, uh, because I've sort of worked in this space, especially on the reporting side of it. Now, you touched on the incident reporting. Uh, obviously, someone within the organisation, within 12 hours uh, with those categories of the critical infrastructure, have to say we've got a breach and then deliver a report within 72 hours. Now, to really press on that point i've done reporting it's stressful you get different you, you've got 50 people delivering your information you've got to synthesize this is this the right guy that i'm getting the information from because other people have different versions of the story do you believe 72 hours seems unreasonable <sighs> um <laughs> so it depends who i'm talking to um I, I, the answer is no you have to look at the objectives of this particular regulation. And the objectives are that the government 
and specifically the ACSC, um, really wants to get ahead of the game and be able to provide assistance if needed. And uh, keep in mind, this 72-hour uh, requirement is a requirement on critical infrastructure. So if you've been deemed critical infrastructure, you could have a material impact on society if you are down. And you only have to think of the colonial pipe incident uh, to think of how quickly uh, things can you know, get bad um, when one of these uh, you know, service providers goes out. So I think 72 hours, I mean, it is tough. Um, what it means is that your incident response plan and your crisis management plan, I mean, you cannot be doing that you know, post the event. And I say that a bit fickly, but we, we see it a lot. Uh, they pull out a plan that was written five years ago that have five bullet points on it. You know, it's just um, incident response needs to be a well-oiled, um, well-thought-through, well-practiced, and regularly visited uh, uh, procedure. And uh, providing uh, the report and having the technology to be able to actually tell you what you need to do is super important. And I think, to your point, uh, it is really hard um, to get the information and. I'm not going to kid you by saying, uh, you know, you can just go in as a consultant and actually just sort of figure it out for people. Because um, as we've seen more recently, attacks on supply chains have made life really difficult. You know, a lot of these ransomware attacks and nation state attacks are rippling down through two or three providers before they hit the target. And, you know, once the target is hit, uh, uh, you know, getting that information of, of what the incident was, uh, what you know, what has actually happened, and what you should be doing about it is is complicated. And we saw that just recently in Australia when um, that uh, the payment company was hit by ransomware, and we had downstream clients coming to us saying, "What do we do? Do we do we shut the firewalls? Do we, you know, do we uh, go into some emergency mode?" Um, and they were they were really scrambling to think about what the impact, the downstream impact was. So it's a yes and no answer, I'm afraid. It's um, it's a tricky one, but I think that's the world we're going to live in. We have to get quick and, and efficient at reporting. Yeah, I totally hear your point of view. I mean, if I think Woolworths is in that category, isn't it? Um, retailer. So, um, you know, something, what those guys go down, it's there's going to be hangry people all over, you know, the country. They can't, you know, they can't use FBOS terminals or, or whatever it may be. Um, totally understand. I guess really from my perspective, it's more so if I put my security hat on and working in this function historically, it's more about the quality of the information. And it's like, maybe we're rushing to it. And then if you say the wrong thing in the report, because you didn't have the data points by 72 hours, perhaps it might be premature to make a statement or a claim because you don't have all the answers and therefore perhaps we are being led down the wrong path because it hasn't given enough time to really see it through to understand and dissect the incident. So what are your thoughts on that? Just just that point specifically. I get the critical infrastructure side of things from a consumer perspective, but more from that security point of view of perhaps saying the wrong thing um, and then people taking that as fact and running with it. Yeah, look, it's a very, very valid point. And we see, you know, we see it in the press all the time. XYZ company hit by ransomware. Is it, you know, XYZ company or country that's done it? And there's all this speculation. And weeks or months later, 
you know, you find out the true story and, and so do they, because it takes a long time sometimes to investigate. And I think it's a very pertinent point that uh, knowing what's defined as a breach and, and then being able to kind of figure out wh whether it is a real breach or has someone, you know, done something inadvertent um, is extremely difficult. And there will be a tendency with these short report times to, to get it wrong. I, I think that's almost certain certainly guaranteed. But I think we have to keep in mind um, that the government has realised that communicating and threat sharing is one of the key tools that we can use to um, prevent problems or at least uh, get, get around them quicker and recover quicker. And so I think you have to look at the purpose of some of these regulations because there's another one in there that's controversial as well, which is um, uh, what they call assistance rights. So in theory, ASD could come in and assist a company um, in dealing with the, the threat. You know, this is national security issues, of course. But um, both are actually there to really assist the company. And so um, if a company feels that a breach has occurred, you know, uh, some, some um, identities, some Office 365 email accounts have been taken out, um, then they might have the intelligence on their, you know, on other similar clients and be able to quickly tell the, the business, look, we know what's happening because we've seen exactly the same pattern in three other companies. And those other companies, you just wouldn't be aware of that. Um, this is not a public announcement when you declare a breach. You're not, this won't be published um, as far as I'm aware, at least on, you know, some, some big bulletin board that, that sort of puts you up in the lights. You're not going to appear on the Fin Review front page if you, um, you know, if you if you say, look, we think we've had an incursion. This is what's going on. I think this is government's attempt to start to coordinate better. But I take your point completely because we have been there many times, sort of scratching our heads as to what's going on. And those early hours are very confusing. You don't know where on the timeline of the incident you're starting at. You don't know if it's misreading because some machine is just you know, got some corruption and it's beaconing to the wrong place or something. There's a lot of confusion at that early phase. Um, I agree. Yeah, well, someone's away on holidays and then we've got to call the guy up and we can't get through to him because he's in the Caribbean somewhere. So, I mean, there's so many complexities to the problem and then everyone starts stressing. And especially when you're the person delivering the report, pressure's on you. Um, so switching gears for a moment, now, Recently, NTT has forged a partnership with the National Cyber Forensics and Training Alliance. Talk to me about this. Yes. So uh, the NCFTA, <laughs> nice big long acronym, uh, has been around for many years, um, but certainly is gaining uh, prominence, I think, in its mission. And its mission is to share information uh, between industries, academia, and law enforcement to make that process of detecting and responding to an incident much more effective and, and efficient, I guess. And so um, NTT has our own group, actually the same group that writes those monthly reports, the Global Threat Intelligence uh, Group. And uh, that is a team, a band of brothers and sisters that are uh, involved in scanning threats. Um, there's a lot of research work that NTT does on botnets and, and the like, and we do get involved in 
takedowns and investigations. And um, uh, I think this was a natural extension of our involvement at a global level. We have been involved in Interpol and um, the uh, Sub Forensics and Training Alliance is uh, more US based, it's, it's back, backed by the FBI. Um, and uh, we actually have a person that sits in one of their offices uh, as with a number of other uh, companies. And, um, you know, when we see something happening or we're investigating a breach or some event from anywhere in the world, uh, we can go to them and say, here's the threat indicators, the IOCs, um, do you, you know, can you tell us anything about them? And, and they might come to us. And we've seen some amazing takedowns, um, you know, TrickBot, uh, we, we published um, some of that that Microsoft and, and NTT and many other companies and, and um, law enforcement agencies got involved in uh, to sort of try and slow down these massive, you know, botnets that were being used by ransomware gangs uh, is an example of the sort of um, coordinated activity. But I think coming back to one of the other themes, your question about um, the need to report quickly, this is governments not just in Australia, but all over the world, starting to understand the need to coordinate, to threat share at a, in a better way. And, um, and that has to occur at a trusted sort of enclosed level. And so we need these groups, these, these you know, sort of um, committees, if you like, uh, where you can securely uh, um, swap information and um, just be more effective at taking down some of these big international groups. Operative sort of phrase you said is sharing information. Now, I've had people on the show before that have said in Australia, we need to share more. We don't share that often in comparison to other parts of the world. I'm curious to know from your perspective why that is and perhaps what the apprehension or reservation is between sharing. Yeah. Yeah, sharing's a two-way thing. <laughs> I could probably go into the philosophy of, uh, you know, the importance of trust uh, and the likes. Uh, look, I think every country is a bit different. Uh, I think when you hear those comments, you are coming across a natural barrier that has existed in a lot of countries, including Australia. And, you know, the ASDs and the Australian Cybersecurity Centres, they, they have to tread a fine line between the classified end of the world. So that's, for us, the connection into the Five Eyes uh, world and the commercial world. And uh, intelligence, as they will tell you from 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, um, is a aspect of a superpower that can give you know, an organization um, a real leg up in terms of defeating the adversary. And so um, I think there's been a reluctance, a natural reluctance from government to share indicators that might display um, capability. And you know, that's been demonstrated also by people like the you know the NSA and, and the likes as well but uh, you know they have been dragged out a little bit into the open air and I think the Australian cybersecurity Center is a great example of um, a an attempt by government to um, coordinate better with industry to share uh, more, more intelligence and you know every state has has a branch now um, and you can listen in on um, findings from them. Uh, there are more sensitive parts of that, that that you can swap more, you know, higher levels of intelligence. And certainly we're involved in that as many others are. So I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance in, in threat sharing. 
but we are seeing more and more of that and and indeed the you know the national cyber forensics and training alliance is is yet another example of of this attempt to get closer uh, between the uh, the players that can actually make a difference what about in australia do you still see that there is that apprehension towards sharing uh I mean, if you look globally, I can understand things are classified and, of course, people are not just going to air everything out, which is understandable. But what about within our own nation? I still believe there is still this lack of helping one another and I'm curious to know why. We're a small nation. We should be banding together and I feel there is sort of a lot of these independent silos and everyone wants to operate independently. Yeah. Yeah, look, I I, I wouldn't disagree with you there Um, and I think it's a complicated answer some of it definitely is commercial there's probably you know commercial barriers between one vendor and another um because that's their livelihoods based on how quick and fast and you know efficient they can detect and defend against some aspect um government is has been less mature has had its own sort of club if you like and and um that's been difficult to access and and per- perhaps it's a bit in our psyche not to uh, not to talk about um, the dark side so much the the events. I mean, you don't hear that many organisations coming out and talking more openly about issues they've had. Um, that's starting to change. I have to say, it's refreshing to hear um, some big companies talk about you know their experience with ransomware um, and how they you know what what happened and and how they dealt with it. So I think, um, but yeah, maybe, maybe there's a bit of everything, commercial, you know, cultural uh, and and other issues uh, that are going on. But to your point, I think um, we need to work out ways of getting around that because um, threat sharing, as I said right at the beginning, is certainly a, a superpower and it's something that gives you that advantage. Would you say focusing on the individual, they are worried personally? So for example, if they're a CISO of a large organisation, breach happens, they're fired for whatever reason, then they've got to talk about it. That potentially damages their personal brand, which may prohibit them from getting the next role because it's like, oh, well, you're the guy that got fired from the bridge. I'm not going to necessarily hire you. And you've just told me about everything that you've done, which I don't agree with. Therefore, perhaps there's that reluctancy because of their own personal brand, which I can understand, right? Like it's it's still their livelihood and you know they have to go out and get another job with everyone knowing their dirty laundry, so to speak. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, we're all human, and you know, put yourself in their shoes, and I think you would be a bit reluctant. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, that's that's a very natural uh, issue. And I haven't read or heard too many Australian CISOs sort of falling on the sword. Um, and even globally, if you think about it, there has been a few notable ones. And uh, you know, everyone talks about the short tenure of a CISO. But I actually think that's more due to the pressure uh, and and the difficult job a CISO has in spanning between, you know, the business objectives versus the security objectives. Um, but there's certainly not that many stories. I mean, I've listened to a few podcasts and they're so insightful uh, on CISOs or security people that have gone through breaches. It's really uh, humbling to hear them, and um, I think. You know, we in the industry have to be grateful for those uh, security and, and others that have been willing to share their their, their stories. Um, you, you can see the really big impact on them personally. I think uh, people underestimate 
what happens if a company does get breached and if you're the one that is the you know the representative person that's meant to be defending it and you you just hadn't implemented some technology or you'd let some stupid thing go by because you know it wasn't high on your priority list but i think um i think uh it's a balancing it there's some cup you know if you're a size you, you you're going to have to meet compliance requirements and that will sit on you because you're an officer of, of the business but um i think i think we have to be a bit more accepting of um of uh the errors that people make and um and and help them correct them so would you say because of the partnership that you've now uh, put in place with NCFTA, will we see better alignment with the information sharing in the industry? Is that sort of like the impetus behind the partnership as well? Yeah, I, yes. I think the simple answer is yes, we will. Um, it's it's a journey. However, it's not a destination. And I think that will be one of many vehicles. Um, and look, we've seen initiatives uh, come and go over the years. Um, I have to say the encouraging thing about this alliance and some of the others that we're seeing are that they are more heavily involving um, government, particularly law enforcement and um, kind of industry that, that can make a real difference. And so I think uh, I think that, that we will see more of these occurring and we've sort of got similar things forming here in Australia and lots of organisations um, have links into law enforcement uh, as well. So, and perhaps we'll see a similar partnership perhaps um, uh, start to, to emerge here. So, so I think so, um, and, and they are encouraging um, because law enforcement is proving to be, is proving to get better and better uh, at the moment. You know, I think they've been a bit back-footed um, uh, with, with the rapid shift from what we call kinetic criminals to these, you know, these virtual cyber criminals. And um, uh, you know we're we're starting to see them really ramp up, given given the extent of of losses to to cyber crime. The next thing I'd like to focus on now, which I read in the report, is that Google announced its plan to phase out third party cookies. What are the changes that we'll sort of see from that? Yeah, well, it's quite a revolutionary statement, isn't it? Because um, you know, cookies. <laughs> not primarily, but have been heavily used to track who we are, what we're interested in, you know, uh, the nature of things that we do on the internet. And of course, organizations like Google monetize that. That's been the basis of their their business case. And so to hear Google say that they're, um, they're, they're dumping them or will prevent them from operating on, on Chrome is uh, well, might come as a surprise to some. I would say, however, if you've been reading the press, you will see that the pressure coming from governments all around the world on um, the need for these sort of organisations to step up privacy and protection of effectively the users of their technology has been growing. And of course, in Australia, I mean, we especially as we get close to election time, you know, we don't need to... Um, uh, go very far to to recall the stories that um, some of these players, such as Google and Facebook, uh, have really been um, been hit with from from government to sort of tidy up their act a bit. And and Google have had this floating around for a while. I think um, they realised that their time of you know juicy tidbits from from uh, from um, uh, using um, 
you know, these sort of technologies was, was going to have to disappear. And they came up with this thing called Flock, F-L-O-C, a while ago. And this was uh, an attempt to still gain some information about you as the user, but to sort of obfuscate that a bit to the advertising community. And that one didn't quite make it. The privacy advocates sort of stomped on it a bit. And now they've come up with um, a tool called Topics. And um, Topics uh, is likely to come in. They, they're, they're talking about 2023, so so next year sometime. Um, and the the kind of guarantee that you will have as a user using Chrome is that they'll still track some trends. So, you know, if John Caravan uh, is interested in, you know, cars or mountain bikes or whatever, I may still see some um, shaped advertising coming to me, but the advertisers won't really have a sense of who I am and, you know, my, and, and uh, my, the anonymousness of my, you know, interactions will, will not be uh, disclosed. Now, this, of course, um, has also been taken up by other players like Apple. Um, and uh, it's all heading towards these privacy compliance. And I think if I was to say there was another trend that I didn't mention, trend number six, it's um, the privacy, the intersection of compliance and privacy is growing. And of course, Australia is heading towards a GDPR type framework. So it's the US, so Singapore, many other, China, many companies are heading that way. And so I think these companies are getting on the front foot a little bit and gearing themselves up. It's the ones like Facebook slash Meta that, um, that's, you know, they had a dramatic drop in their share price when people realized that their main way of monetizing your use of their, uh, their, their interface um, is selling your, the nuances of how you interact and what you're interested in to the advertisers. And so I think um, uh, there's a lot of correction going to have to go on the market. I think this is a good thing. Um, you know, most of us desire a degree of privacy, but it's it's a balancing act. Um, I certainly, uh, you know, cookies were there for a reason to make the, the interface quicker, um, certainly there to automate and speed up how I get around the internet. So there's some good there as well. And so I think we're going through a bit of a step change at the moment, trying to balance the experience you get with the company um, uh, versus your right for privacy. And it'll be interesting to see how well that works out for some players. Because I think some business models are going to be completely blown up um, with it. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword for me. Obviously, I'm in that uh, marketing advertising space. Um, but there's always workarounds. But I guess from a security perspective, I get it. Of course, it's an obvious answer. Will you, would you sort of say, though, because of this shift, it will sort of even out the playing field a little bit more, right? Because, I mean, you've got these big advertisers. They've got big dollars. They put more money into Facebook advertising because they know that they can hone in on, in inverted commas, like John Caravan. They know everything about you now. So I guess perhaps it's if we zoom out it's definitely going to provide like potential smaller players to get a piece of that pie other than the, the big dogs is coming in and just taking the whole pie so to speak yeah yeah i can sit in both sides i mean i think um you're right you know an organization with massive budgets for advertising can you know saturate um, the experience and just have banners everywhere uh, versus perhaps a small niche player um, like a local winery or whatever, you know, just targeting the local region and not having to spend those, you know, those huge amounts of um, uh, dollars on it. So, I, I, you know, I can see a, a sort of um, a bit of to and froing, and um, I suspect 
like a lot of things, we as the consumer will get a bit of a choice. I mean, I don't completely mind having a bit of a profile because, um, you know, I have particular interests and, and it, you know, it, it sort of helps me. And, uh, you know, I feel conflicted every time I use Google search, for example, because I know it's catering to me. It's influencing me a little bit uh, by showing me what it wants to show uh, versus perhaps, you know, just a just the bigger spectrum of things that does save time for me, however, and, um, um, you know, but I've just got to be aware of it. So I think like everything, um, buyer beware, I think we as users and probably my advice to the younger generations uh, is that don't trust, and this is coming from a security person, so not surprising, but don't trust what you're getting. Don't trust the news, the information, the adver adverts you're getting. Um, you have to uh, do some lateral, you know, left, right sort of scanning of um, information sources on the internet because I think even with these mechanisms to protect your privacy, you know, one of the future trends, AI, machine learning and that, they're just really clever algorithms that can twist and turn and obfuscate um, information and messaging. And it's beholden of our, you know, intellects to, to uh, delve a little bit deeper, ask that extra question, be a little bit, you know, of a doubting Thomas and, and, and come up with a sort of a balanced uh, view, you know, or, or product or whatever, you know, value we get. I agree with you. I don't mind getting targeted advertising. I mean, I don't really want to look at ads that aren't relevant to me at all. So I, I do have some sort of uh, ag agreement on that front. I'd like to sort of close with can you talk through the innovation that will be reborn and is on the horizon i mean you sort of touched on it in the report or sorry the report touched on it but i'm keen to hear from your perspective i mean we spoke about a lot of things here today and i did want to go into a little bit more detail but obviously time is valuable so i'm keen to sort of maybe just hear from your point of view what's sort of going to happen uh in the future yeah well, I'm going to give you a hint. Um, I'm a great believer of um, the impact of convergent technologies. So, and you know, most of us would know at least um, uh, of of some of the impacts of that. And everyone references the iPhone as a great example of a pivot point, perhaps in our recent history, where Mr. Jobs and his team came up with the great idea of putting music and internet, you know, into a beautiful graphical interface on a on a phone and i still have um you know penned up in my shed uh, a blackberry which i love dearly with the keyboard but was just like dumb 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 you know and um uh iphones are an example we needed a few things to happen really we needed a cloud environment um to 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 be available uh we needed uh, you know, we needed the technology touch screens to occur. We needed reasonable bandwidth over the air and we needed processing power that could exist in, you know, in that kind of phone. And they're, they're convergent um, technologies. And I think we're getting close to a number of technologies that will leapfrog us again. Couldn't go past mentioning AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning in our industry, security, already we're seeing massive uh, changes and improvements in the way that we can deal with huge amounts of information and sift through the the needle stack 
of needles and find that one you know threat indicator that's sort of pertinent to our, our business and that's through sophisticated so far sophisticated algorithms um and and uh an ability to sort of look for anomalies that, that just humans just couldn't pick up on the, the the ai story you know it depends on who you talk to but i think ai is that next level of of intelligence that um gives all sorts of capabilities but by itself you know great uh but i think there's a few other things happening we're seeing a massive um uh, what we call edge computing um capability so uh this is this is the the compute power that doesn't just exist in cloud environments so virtual compute power but but now is extending out to you know to the enterprise um and and that's there to give high high or low latency and high compute power to all those devices that are appearing and suddenly the world of it is appearing but that in itself wouldn't do anything except i think we're seeing a, a revolution now in in um uh, communications technologies so 5g but forget 5g it's all about 6g <laughs> and um actually ntt is part of a group called next generation mobile networks ngmn and that's 6g and 7g and that's like 100 gig and uh that technology will enable um uh you know things like the metaverse that we're actually starting to hear a bit about but still not really capable of of producing uh amazing uh, technology for process and develop information via AI and, and that compute power that will exist. I think we'll see some fundamental shifts. We're just about to put a paper out actually on industry 4.0, which I won't go into, but that is that revolutionizing of um, uh, technologies, systems and people and how we will sort of interact with the, the real world that we exist in. And I think we're on the cusp of perhaps that uh, really interesting time and i'd be negligent to say if it has to have secure by design underneath it all because if you cannot trust that technology well then we might as well go back to the caves john thanks for making time today and walking us through uh the nct monthly threat report as well as talking about the trends some of your personal observations and what we can expect in the future so really appreciate you coming on the show today absolute pleasure and uh look forward to catching up soon thanks for tuning in We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.